when I was at uh, Moody, freshman year, believe it or not, I know you'll have, find this hard to believe, but there was a, a girl who was enamored with me. Yeah, believe it. Yeah, serious, serious. Miracles never cease, right? And um, her name was Holly, and, and she was she was a, a great gal. But in my mind, we we're nothing but but more than friends. But we were in the band together, and so between all the being in the bus and the practices and the concerts and the tours and everything else, we got to know each other. Well, she would call. She was a very bold gal. She would call me up on a regular basis, or stop me in the hall or wherever else, and, and remind me that I have not yet asked her out to let them eat cake. Let them eat cake was a classy bakery deli place on Rush Street. And so she'd call me in the middle of the night and say, by the way, Mark, here's my schedule just in case you want to invite me to let them eat cake. And she would do it all the time. This was on all the time. I get notes in my mailbox on a regular basis. Well, it's starting to, to, to get old after a while. And so she called me up one night and just let me know that Friday evening her schedule was open in case I wanted to ask her to let them eat cake. And I assured her, no, no, thank you. I had other things going on and, and maybe sometime in the future. Right? Uh, but I could hear her roommate in the background. And so I had this great idea. I said, hey, hey Holly, let me talk to your roomie. And, and Debbie was her roommate. Debbie was also in the band. Debbie was a cute, quiet girl from Baton Rouge and uh, just a nice, nice girl. But this great idea I had. I said, hey, Deb, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. Well, Deb, what are you doing Friday night? She said, Nothing. I would like to go to let them eat cake. She goes, oh, that'd be great. So I hung up. I thought, oh, this is great. I thought this is wonderful, right? Uh, Debbie went downstairs to study. She came back and then she called me. Uh, she said that her roommate, Holly, had taken her bed and her posters and her clothes and everything else and put it out in the hall and locked the door and let her in. Again, I, I thought this was, was just phenomenal. I, I love this. Uh, a couple days later, I'm walking in the, the hall, the, the tunnels in, in Moody. Uh, many of the buildings are connected underground with tunnels, so you don't have to brave the elements in the, in the wintertime. And so I'm walking in the halls. It's after dinner. I, I remember this. And uh, way down the end, the end of the tunnel, there's this gal turn. It was Debbie. And she's walking towards me. And we're the only ones down there. And I can tell something's not right, though. So as we get next to each other, hey, Deb, how are you doing? She said, uh, well, um, yeah, yeah. Can, can I talk with you, Mark? I said, well, sure, sure. He said, I think I need to cancel our date for Friday night. I'm thinking that she got death threats from Holly or something. I thought, well, well, what's wrong, Deb? And she said, well, I think you only asked me out because you wanted to get at my roommate. And I think I'm worth just a little bit more than that. And then she went on. She kept going. You know, that wasn't enough, right? She goes, she, she said, you know, Mark. I don't know if you're doing this consciously or not, but it's a game you play, but, but you kind of flirt with girls and make them think that you're interested. And then when they respond, you pull back and they think they misinterpreted. So they pull back. But then as soon as they do, you flirt some more and, and you're, you're playing games with girls hearts, Mark, and it just really hurts. I don't know what dirt feels like. But I had an awful good feeling right at that point. I'm thinking, this has got to be real close to it. I stood about an inch tall with three dozen eggs on my face, and every analogy and metaphor you can come up with for feeling like scum was mine in spades at that point. Uh, embarrassed and humiliated and everything else with it. But I knew she was right. I mean, this was a blind. I didn't even, I never thought about this before. But as she said that, I thought, yes, it's what I do, it's a game. Pride and insecurity. Now, the craziest thing with that, that opportunity 
was was when Debbie left, I stood there humiliated, shamed, but having grown leaps and bounds through that. Yeah, confrontation is a horrible thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's on the scale somewhere between, you know, root canal without anesthesia and passing kidney stones. You know, it's just right in there somewhere. You know, it's, it's just not a good thing. It, it's so the emotional pain is almost worse than any physical pain that we could endure. Now, the problem is we need it, though. We, uh, we might have come to know Christ and are following him and all of our sins are forgiven and we're justified. But practically speaking, we've got a long ways to go. You know, it's like the guy who, who, who prayed, Lord, so far today, I haven't hurt anybody and I haven't gossiped. And so far today, Lord, my thoughts have been pure. And so far today, I, I have honored you. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from that point on, it all goes downhill. We, we're sinners. That's just who we are. We wish it wasn't so, but we are. And that comes clear in several different ways. First of all, it comes clear in even blind spots, like my thing with Debbie, because unconsciously we operate out of a, a environment of depravity, uh, dysfunctional ways we grew up, uh, discipled by the media in our, in our culture, our own wicked heart. I mean, we, we just operate without even thinking out of this uh, environment sometimes. Maybe it's a sin and we know it is and we're just, that's just the way it is. That's all right. Maybe it's something that's like left over from our B.C. days. You know, it's something we struggled with our whole life and we're not we're very ashamed of it. But but we have freedom once in a while, but it keeps it's been haunting us forever and we keep it locked up in the hall closet. You know, no one knows about this. But once in a while, not all that often, once in a while, when when people aren't home, we'll go up to that closet and unlock it just to make sure it's still there. It's still a part of. Of, of who we are. Now, once in a while, when this kind of thing is going on, we'll be found out. And then we will be lucky, maybe, if somebody will have the courage, have the compassion, have the guts to call us on it, to call us to a higher standard. Now, right away, you, you, what, 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 is our, what is our reaction to that kind of thing? When someone wants to, I mean, we're, we pull up the walls and the guns come out, don't we? Who are you? And I judge a name. And we're, we're just going to defend ourselves. The self-preservation. And, but, but the thing that we defend is really dangerous because that which we preserve are the chains that keep us from knowing him. A confrontation. By, now we're talking by someone who, who loves us. We're not talking about some folk who got a contract out on us, but somebody who loves us. A confrontation is really, it's not, it's not an assault on our survival. It's the voice of God calling us to, to a level of freedom that we might not have experienced. It, it, confrontation is an incredible opportunity because when we're there, we're at a crossroads. And here's the thing. We don't have a lot of time to think about it or pray about it. We're being blindsided at the time. But again, how we respond at that point is going to set in motion our future destiny. So it's really important that we respond properly. And at that point... Where God is calling us, it is, it is an opportunity to experience his grace in a new way. It's an opportunity to experience his freedom. It's, he is beckoning us to lose those things that keep us from being effective or significant in this world. He's calling us to trade in our plastic beads for pearls. And so how we respond at that crossroads is an incredibly important time. And so here's the question this morning. When you come to that point in your life... 
how do you respond? How do you respond? What we want to do this morning is we want to look at kind of a tale of two kings. Two different Christians who each were confronted and how did they respond? And we're going to look at their lives and we're going to see if we can see ourselves and, and who might we be more like and the consequences for how they responded. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel 12. Now, Second Samuel 11 reads like a soap opera. And Second Samuel 11, that is when King David uh, schemes and plans on how he's going to have an adulterous affair with his, one of his good friend's wives. And, and you know the story. He and Bathsheba have an affair and sends Bathsheba back home. The problem is she ends up pregnant and her husband's been on tour of duty for quite some time. And so how in the world did this happen? And so he tries to figure out how to cover his tracks and nothing is working. So finally he sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, on a suicide mission. As soon as the funeral's done, he takes her into his house. Now the goofy thing about that is this. David, who is, a, who is a sinner and a culprit and a villain in 5,000 different ways in this story, ends up smelling like a rose. There, there was not a lot of social security going on. And so a, a young widow was in a, a terrible straits. And so here's King David. He took a widow of his faithful warrior Uriah, and he decided that he, out of the kindness of his heart, he would just bring her into his palace and give her security and give her a place and take care of her. And people would say, oh, David is so wonderful. We're so lucky to have a king like David. David is coming out looking pretty good in this. And he's thinking this is OK. He gets away with it. He's gotten away with it. And, and, and then in chapter 12, according to the, the scripture, God steps in to confront David about his sin. Now, I know it looks like there's, what, a quarter of an inch between chapter 11, the end, and chapter 12. But really, nine months have passed between these two sections. Nine months. And God is just starting to step in nine months later. And we might say, God, for crying out loud, why are you waiting so long? You should nip these things in the bud when they happen. What is this, nine months? I mean, and isn't this just like with us sometimes? We see folk who, who sin, who do some evil stuff, and it looks like, They've gotten away with it. God is not showing up. As a matter of fact, they've got some benefits. They're having their cake and eat it too. And God is not doing anything about it. And it it looks like he's not showing up. Well, Chuck Swindoll has got an incredible saying. He says that that the wheels of God uh, grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. No one gets away with anything. And so, so God sends... Nathan, by the way, uh, just so you know, these past nine months were not a picnic for King David. In Psalm 32, he writes about this gap between chapter 11 and 12. This is what he says. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is in no deceit. Next slide. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, uh, as, as you can imagine. And any, this is true for anybody who's got something hid upstairs in the hall closet. You're, you're trying to cover your tracks. You're trying to make sure nobody knows. You're worried that you might be found out. 
there's the, the issue of the Holy Spirit within you and the conviction going on. And, and having stuff in the hall closet is not a fun time. It is not a joyous occasion for a child of God. This was no picnic for David. This was a long nine months. But his God cares so much about him, he doesn't want him to stay there. So in chapter 12, he sends Nathan. 12.1, the Lord sent Nathan to David right away. Confrontation is the voice of God calling us to a new level of freedom. When he came to him, he said, Nathan's going to lay something on the king. Nathan is one of his counselors. By the way, this is kind of a tangent thing, but let me throw this out. Uh, Nathan is, is, is close to David. When you're going to confront somebody head on, proximity is, is, needs to be part of the equation. Uh, so, so, so Nathan is close to David, but he comes to him. He says, he says there were, there were, there were uh, two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And this would have been normal to bring the real difficult issues, the real sticky wickets to the king who acted like the Supreme Court. Nathan's saying, David, we've got a problem in your kingdom. There are two guys out there, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. He had all kinds of herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Nathan is a master of painting this picture verbally, isn't he? And you can see it. they got the rich guy. He's got his herds. But then he's got this poor guy. He saved up his money, and he bought this thing. And it was, it was not just a, a piece of livestock. This was like a daughter to him. In other words, he loved it. There was relationship there with the whole family. And so right now, David would say, well, okay, it's not a sin to be rich. That's what, we need those guys for our tax base. That's all right. So what's the problem here? Well, verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Well, David blows. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Now, surely as the Lord lives, he was pronouncing this with an oath. The gavel was down. It was set. This could not be shifted unless it was by somebody greater than David. He deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over. That's Exodus 22. That's restitution because he did such a thing and had no pity. David has been out of shape. I can't believe this sinfulness, this selfishness. This obvious callousness is hurting other people. This guy's got herds and he won't and he steals it from... Not another my watch, not my kingdom, death. And he's still sitting on his fume. He's, you know, just or his throne. He's fuming and he's, he's red and his smoke's popping out of his ears a little bit. And then, then, then Nathan does probably gives the most, most famous line in the Bible, right? He puts, pulls the mirror up. He says, David, you are the man. You demand, David. You're the guy. Now, you can imagine David gets a little nervous here because to our knowledge, nobody really knows what happened. Now, Bathsheba knows about the affair thing, but according to our knowledge, she has no clue about her husband. She doesn't know, according to to our knowledge, that David had her husband killed. Now, maybe she connected the dots and it did seem kind of serendipitous that her husband just happened to be killed at an opportune time for David. But she doesn't know. 
And Joab knows that, that, that David had Uriah killed, but to our knowledge, Joab doesn't know anything about the relationship with Bathsheba, and maybe David wanted Uriah killed because Uriah really was a, a criminal or some, some sort. Uh, so nobody really knows. David's got this thing locked up in his hall closet. Nobody knows but him. So when Nathan says, you're the man, you've got to be going, ah, well, what, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, 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 what do you mean? Uh, what, 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 what are you thinking about, Nathan? Well, Nathan goes on. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And don't you love this next line? And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. I've been his son, Absalom. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Now, we look at this and we go, man, Nathan's kind of relentless here. You know, David's down and he just kept kicking him. You did it, and you killed them, and it was you used the sword of the Ammonites, but you killed them, and you stole his wife, and he just keeps going at it. Uh, we prefer the subtle approach. I'm going to kind of hint at it and walk away because confrontation is pretty hard. But Nathan knows that unless all the excuses have been removed, unless the shadows that you could hide behind are all gone, uh, unless you, you have realized you are not the victim here, but the perpetrator, you can never properly repent. How do you properly repent? Well, you know, you can improperly repent. I don't know if you know this. Uh, let's look at the second king. It's in First Samuel, David's predecessor. Verse 15. Saul. Samuel, who's going to act in this story, is like the Nathan and to David in the last one, Samuel tells Saul, OK, listen, Saul, here's a mission from God. You've got to go to this group of people, this town. They're incredibly wicked, incredibly vile. You aren't going to believe the stuff that they do from God. You're supposed to annihilate all of them, everybody, not only them, but all of their livestock. Now, that's a difficult command for us to get our heads around. But it was still very clear for Saul what he was supposed to do. Very clear. But Saul didn't do it. And so Samuel goes to see him in first chapter 15, verse 13 of first Samuel. It says, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? As, as hard as that command was, it seems like Saul and his, his guys had no problem killing the people. But the livestock, see, livestock, that was money. And the, 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 the better the livestock, the, the better the breed, the, better, all, the more money it was worth. So they saved some of those. 
And so, so he's saying, I, I did what God told me to do. He says, no, no, wait a minute. If you did what God told you to do, how come I'm hearing bad moo moo? How come I'm hearing this? I should not be here. There should be no bad moo if, if you did what God called you to do. And so what does he say? Ah, bah, 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 bah. Verse, verse 15, that Saul answered, <laughs> the soldiers. <laughs> don't you love it? It's what we do, don't we? You ask your little, your, your child, did you hit her? Did you hit him? Or you hit her, Johnny, or whatever? Well, she hit me first, right? We blame the other person. I got, it's the other person's fault. I mean, I can't, yes, but it was the other, see, I was forced. I didn't have a choice. It was the other person. That's what, that's what Saul says. It was the soldiers. Good help is so hard to find, Samuel. I'm telling you, I tried and I told them and they wouldn't listen. What can I do? It was the soldiers. It wasn't me. And then he, then he goes on a little bit further. And he says, the, the soldiers, uh, they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. You know, he's, he's rationalizing a little bit here, isn't he? He says, well, yeah, but hang on. You're judging my motivation. You don't know my motivation. No, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I did this for the money. No, no, no. I did it for, for God. I want you to understand. It was to sacrifice to God. Because God is so cool. I've got to sacrifice. So we did it for God. You, who are you to judge my motivation? In this verse 16, Samuel screams, stop. Uh, we don't say this in our house, but it would be kind of like him saying, shut up. You know, just be quiet. I, no, shh, no, shh. I want you to listen. That's what he says. He says, I want you to hear what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? He knew what was going on in Saul and the soldiers' hearts. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? He denies. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I love, I love this. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. How can you completely destroy them and bring back Agag alive? It's, 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 you can't do that. What is the deal? And what is this? You brought back the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. This is real important. Principle. Uh, he's hiding, which is what we do, behind Partial obedience, isn't he? The command, wipe out everything. What did he do? He improved the command. He's just going to wipe out some of the stuff. Maybe most of the stuff, but he's not going to, not fully. You go to your kids, you say, I want you to clean your room. You can't go out and play until the room is clean. Well, you go out, you look out the window, the kid's out there playing in the front yard. You go up and look at his room, it's trashed. Bed is made, though. And so you haul him in. I told you to clean your room. What's he say? I made the bed. <laughs> Fine, I'm glad you made them. It's a good start. But the command was clean the room. They didn't obey partial obedience. It's disobedience. And when we partially obey God, and this, boy, this happens so often in things he calls us to do. Nine-tenths of it may be easy, but there's that one-tenth of what he's called us to do that is just so doggone hard that we'll do the nine-tenths. And we'll say, well, I got most of it. Partial obedience, I'm there. Partial obedience is disobedience. Look what it says here. Verse 22, Samuel replied, 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And look what he says here. For rebellion, that's partial obedience, is like the sin of divination. It's like witchcraft. It's like Satan worship. Partial obedience in God's eyes is like Satan worship. That's pretty bad. And arrogance, like the evil of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Now, probably would have been good for you to stop right there. But he keeps going. Starts making excuses. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. I was in an emotional state. What could I do? I kind of freak out. Temporary insanity. I don't don't worry what happened. I'm, I'm so sorry. It's just... Terrible stress. What can I say? Samuel's not going to let him off. and keeps pushing, 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 because he knows as long as he's the victim, as long as he's got something to hide behind, you cannot repent. No real repentance there. So Samuel keeps pushing him. Finally, look at verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Yes, I blew it. But let's not tell anybody. Oh, I mean, yes, I blew it, but I don't want people to think of me in a bad way. So can we please just. Would you please honor me? And isn't this us? Please? Well, I don't I don't want people to see my sin. I don't want them to know that I trip and fall. Now, unfortunately, quite often those around us know all this stuff anyway. But we don't want anyone to see. We want to be honored among the people. Now, contrast that with David back in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan just gets through letting David have it. Bam, 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 bam. David's response in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He could have done what we often do when someone confronts us what do we do we start attacking right if we were to look at david's grand grandson asa when hanani the seer confronts him what's he do he locks him in prison because he's the king he can do that how dare somebody confront him? he could have come at him nathan don't let's not forget that i'm the king here buddy and you're on the pay- payroll and I, I did not hire you to do it. you are out of line here he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't make excuses he doesn't blame well it's, it's bathsheba's fault I'm walking along on the top of my palace, just minding my own business. And there is this gorgeous, naked woman right by the side. What am I? I'm a man. What can I? It's not my fault. He doesn't blame his circumstances. And I'm going through midlife crisis. I got a lot of guys. I know. What can I do? I'm just just the state of what's happening. I'm sorry. I'm a victim, really, of what's going on in my life. As long as he's thinking he's a victim. There's no there's going to be no repentance. David's not there. I have sinned against the Lord. He uses those three words, against the Lord, that make all the difference. In 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Look at it for just a second. You know, you can repent, you can have sorrow and have it not be godly sorrow. Uh, years ago, I, I was at a church in uh, 
Ohio. And one of the guys who was on staff, one of the pastors, if you get, just get to know this guy, uh, you'd think this guy was fantastic. He had the whole package. He could preach up a storm. He was a great counselor. He was cool under pressure. He was a strategist. He had it all figured out. Uh, he, was, he had it all. But at night, he was deeply enmeshed in Internet pornography. His, his, his wife had confronted him multiple times, and each time he blamed her, he denied it, he made excuses, uh, he tried to keep that thing locked up in his hall closet. Well, she came to me at one point, and she had a bunch of, I mean, a ton of pages, I don't know how many, just a ton of pages, like a .3 font, single space, just a million internet pornography sites that he visited within the last couple of weeks. And she said, Mark, I'm not, what am I supposed to do? I've confronted him multiple, he assures me that it's done, it's not a problem, he's sorry. What, what do we do? And so I suggested Matthew 18. So she said, okay, I've confronted him. So she said, so will you go with me? So I went with her. The chairman of the board went with her. We sat down in this guy's living room. He came in. Now, he was worked at the church, so he knew us. He wasn't sure what was going on, but he sat down. And then she confronted him anew. And she put it all on the table, literally. She put, and he, he started freaking out. He started crying, and he was, he was just bawling but those were not tears of sorrow they were not tears of remorse he kicked us out of the house they were they were tears of anger he wrote me a letter i got a letter from him a couple days later that was just scathing i mean just just how dare you come and you are just as bad as i the only difference between us is i got caught you did not on and on and on and on and on um tears are not a sign of, of repentance. Just We know that, right? I mean, I'm guessing most folk, doesn't matter, believer or unbeliever, who commit some horrific thing and they get caught and they start feeling the consequences, they're going to be sorry. But more than anything else, they're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry that the consequences are so much. They're sorry that they messed up their own life. Tears are not necessarily the sign that we're looking for. There are signs of, of uh, repentance and I think, again, those three words, against the Lord, I have sinned against the Lord. When David's going to write about this later in Psalm 51, look, look what he says. He says, against you, he's talking to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Again, he's not belittling what happened to Bathsheba. He's not belittling what he did to Uriah. But he knows that ultimately the one who made the rules in the first place is God Almighty, the number one person that was offended, whose law was broke, was God. According to what Nathan tells, tells David, that the enemies now, Israel's enemies now have contempt for the name of the God. In other words, you've messed up God's reputation by what you've done. Uh, David knows. And, and understanding that and then helps you understand that the confrontation is the voice of God calling us to a level of freedom that we might not have gotten to understand otherwise. Now, some fruit of uh, repentance, and this helps you understand. See, if somebody's wondering yourself, am I repentant? Or someone else else repentant? Several things. One is, again, an absence of excuse-making. Okay? Uh, I'm not blaming. I'm not firing upon the guy who's confronting me. I'm not making excuses. I'm not denying. I have sinned. The second is it's an open confession. It's admittance of guilt. Again, keep in mind Saul. What he say? He said, yeah, I've sinned, but honor me before the people. Don't tell anybody. David. What happens with David? 
He penned Psalm 51, which is a song that he was going to teach the whole nation about his sin, his forgiveness, his, his repentance. Again, now David was a national figure. I'm not necessarily recommending that, that all of our sin repentance we need to wear on our sleeve. Uh, but there's a mindset that says, yes, I've sinned, but honor me or I am who I am. Um, there's admittance of guilt. And then third, there, there is an acceptance of consequences. You know, if you look at those consequences that Nathan put on David, there's some pretty severe consequences. The baby is going to die. All of your wives. I mean, there's some, you look at that and you go, ah, I don't know. Now, quite often, tell me if I'm wrong, you, you, you do something bad and kids, maybe your parents or maybe your spouse slaps some consequences on you. And what's the first thing you think? The consequences are so much greater than the sin. I did this itty bitty thing, and the consequences are huge. It's like, put me in Auschwitz, why don't you? You know, I wasn't that bad of a thing. It wasn't that huge. But the law of the harvest kicks in here. Galatians lets us know that don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. But the law of the harvest says, and he reaps much more. I'm not an agricultural sort of person, but, but in Wisconsin, when I first got there, they would plant corn seeds. It'd be corn seeds. But when those things grew up, Right. You got seven foot tall and you got a lot of ears of corn and branches of arms or any what you call this all over the this huge plants. And you got a bitty seed. You're going to reap much more than you plant. Hosea says that if you, you, you sow the wind, what are you going to reap? The whirlwind, a tornado. It's the law of the harvest. And notice David is not pushing on the consequences. He's not saying that's so unfair. You're not doing this right. You don't care. Acceptance of consequences. Even if they seem out of line or extreme or severe, acceptance of consequences is a sign of repentance. There's also a willingness to pay restitution. Now, in some things, some sins, it's difficult to pay restitution. Um, sexual things, uh, umbilical divorce, abortion. There's enough of type of things that we can get ourselves into where there's just no way to make restitution. But there's a willingness that says, you know what, if I can, I, I, I will. Now, when you look at these two guys, Saul, David, how they responded to a confrontation. Let me ask you, how do you respond? How ought you to respond? If you looked at Saul, I mean, his, his life is spiraling down. And this, this, from this point on, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And pursuing, the whole kingdom is going to be gone. But David... Now, there are going to be consequences that he would live with. But many more years of effective, fruitful, honoring God, leading righteously life was had by him. Still called the man after God's own heart. So let me ask, are you you being confronted? Is there something that you are in the middle of right now, being faced with somebody, and you're responding Saul-ish? God would call you otherwise. Let me ask you, maybe this morning I am a Nathan for you. Maybe you've got something hidden in that hall closet that nobody else knows about. And that's kind of sad because until they know about it, you'll never be called on it. But maybe you should assume this morning that God knows about it and he's calling you on it. Uh, Robert Boyd Munger wrote a great little booklet years and years ago, My Heart Christ Home. Where this guy asks Jesus into his, into his heart and he goes to the different rooms of his heart. 
uh, giving them to Christ. Christ wants them. What Christ does to sanctification is what it is. But then, then at the end, he says, there's one more matter of crucial consequence I would like to share with you. One day I found him, that's Jesus, waiting for me at the front door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Indeed, there was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few feet square. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I did not want anyone to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. They were dead and rotting things left over from the old wife. Not wicked, but not right and good to have in a Christian's life. Yet I loved them. I wanted them so much for myself, I was really afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up the stairs with them, and and as we mounted, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed to the door and said, it's in there, some dead thing. It made me angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the study, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room, the bedroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet? I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he responded, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this smell, you're mistaken. I'll take my bed out on the back porch or somewhere else. I'm certainly not going to stay around that. And I saw him start down the stairs. When you've come to know and love Jesus Christ, one of the worst things that can happen is to sense him withdrawing his face and fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to handle that closet, and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key over to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it all away. Then he cleansed the closet, painted it, and fixed it up all in a moment's time. Immediately, a fresh, fragrant breeze swept through the house. The whole atmosphere was changed. What release and victory to have that dead thing out of my life. No matter what sin or what pain there might be in my past, Jesus is ready to forgive, to heal, and to make whole. I would guess, if you've got something in the hall closet this morning, Jesus might be tapping on your heart saying, it's time. We need need to get rid of that. You need, to, you need to have a freedom in your life and a joy and a peace in your life that just is not possible as long as that's there. Would you take a second and bow with me? And if, I mean, we don't need to make things up, but if the Holy Spirit has put his finger on anything in your life this morning, Just between you and him, where you sit, would you give him access to that closet? Would you commit that to him? Would you admit the guilt? Would you quit making excuses? Lord, I want to thank you for the Marvins and Dougs and Debbies and so many others in my life who had the courage and the guts to call me on things. And even though I didn't always respond right, thank you, God, that in your love you brought such folk. And if you would call us to be a Nathan, may we be obedient. But, Lord, may we respond properly. 
when people you bring into our life, when their voice uh, cleverly disguised, but your own calling us to freedom, may we listen, may I listen, that we might be the people you would have us to be. I would ask that that would be so. Thank you, God, for caring enough for us to not leave us. Thank you, God, that you bring things that are even hurtful sometime to make us grow. And God, I would pray that this week you would help me and my brothers and sisters here to live in light of your words, seeking to not be Saul, but to be David in this regard. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.